Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 99. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they got in the classroom, what they're currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Lisa Sequera. Lisa is a science department chair and middle school science instructional coach at Tahanto Regional Middle and High School in Boylston, Massachusetts. She has served as a district mentor for a number of new teachers and has hosted student teachers in her classroom as well. In addition to her leadership work, Lisa also also teaches biology and AP biology. Lisa is an Amgen biotechnology master teacher, uh, bringing both biotech labs to her students and engaging in professional development with the ABE Massachusetts community. You can follow Lisa on Twitter at Sequera Bio. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm really um, very honored to have been asked to join you today. Thank you. Well, this is in place of us walking into a room and forgetting that we're going to see each other, even though we normally every summer walk into a room and see each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Before we started recording, we, you were, we were lamenting and you were specifically lamenting like how we don't see professionals anymore <laughs> face to face. Right. Absolutely. I think that's been the hardest trans- transition of this springtime is not connecting with so many of the colleagues that I've learned to rely on. Yeah, I, I got through the the spring. We did, um, I don't know how your model ended up working, but our model ended up being four days of instruction with Fridays as like professional planning day um, is how they ended up working for us, which I, I know for a lot of people would go like, well, then you only had four days of work for students. But um, because it was an emergency situation, I cannot imagine as hard as I worked during this spring to provide quality instruction. I don't think it, the instruction those four days would have been as good had I not had that day where I met with my colleagues to work on curriculum. Yes, I um, I agree. We we had a similar model in that Wednesdays we had set aside for office hours and meetings, but there wasn't anything consistent in place for meeting with our colleagues. So we had to create those meetings, with, you know, within our groups. And being the department chair, um, I tried to encourage many of us to connect with each other and practice some of the skills that some of us were learning as we went along, as well as sharing new resources that we had come across that had been working well for everyone. Yeah, we we ended up doing a model which was basically um, every Friday morning, we either had a department meeting and sometimes because, you know, we are, we teach in like opposite size schools. We have as many biology teachers as I think you probably have science teachers in your school, <laughs> um, even though we, we don't teach that far apart. I mean, we have what, eight or nine 
biology teachers um, <laughs> at my school. So uh, sometimes we would just meet in like subject areas and it would be like all of the different levels of biology would meet. Um, sometimes we met as a full department. Um, as I said, every other week we had a full faculty meeting to get updates, which were, <laughs> I felt so bad for the leadership, which was like, like two months of, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> but right. but because that was, I mean, honestly, they, they, you know, they would update us on a lot of other sort of nuts and bolts and, and where things were and, and planning and, and things as they went. But uh, gosh, I felt like they, they, at one point they asked, they're like, do you guys want to have weekly meetings? And I think they were probably relieved when everyone's like, no, every other week is fine. Because, you know, the, the news for them was coming so slowly yes. um, and they were, they were so busy putting out fires and organizing things and getting technology and organizing meals and, and all of the other things that they had to do uh, for students. But they unfortunately, just the information flow that they had for us was just very, very slow. Right. And I think that is across the board for everyone. Everybody felt that there was a general feeling of immediacy and need to know, but there was a lack of information Mm -hmm. uh, to be had and to be distributed because there was so much that was unknown. And I, um, as you describe your department, I think, wow, that's amazing. Cause I am the biology department essentially. <laughs> yeah. And my colleague is the chemistry department and my other colleague is the physics department. So that's a very different situation. And just teaching, uh, providing, you know, very different uh, models of curriculum development and the reason why I rely so heavily on the professional development communities, particularly the ABE community for that connection with yeah. amongst biology teachers. Whereas we have a very cohesive science department um, but there is only so much support you can provide when you're all singletons, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also have to be, as department head, I'm sure you play free agent every once in a while where you're like, apparently I am the eighth grade science teacher this year. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. There was actually one year that, so there are seven periods in the day. And there had been some disruption in staffing and scheduling that had come about very suddenly. And I found myself in charge of eight courses hmm. in a seven course day. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> that was challenging. Yeah, um, I, I lived through it, and which is an important thing. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of uh, sort of, you know, as we're recording this in mid-July. And I said, like, I have never felt more sort of at sea ever, like, of unknown. Uh, and as a, you know, 24-year veteran of this, like, this is weird. So, like, this is a very weird, it's a very weird time. And I'm sure we're going to get into talking a little bit about uh, sort of our approaches to getting ready for next year and, and all that's been going on. But I do want to start the first question. As I said, I, this has been, this has sort of been one of the more fun things. I, I just talked to to Anu the other day out in Oregon. And, like, it was great because I had no idea how she became a teacher. And I knew she had all this background. But I also don't know how you became a science teacher. So I'm going to start with my first question I like to ever ask everybody, which is, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? 
Well, I honestly, I can't imagine myself never being in a classroom ever. Mm. I always imagined myself being a science teacher, although I did imagine myself doing other things. But I think in my bones, I always knew that I would be a teacher. So very early on, when I was little, I created classrooms in, you know, wherever. I spent a lot of time outside. So I created classrooms outside in a little cove in the woods where I used to play. And I loved being in school. And it sounds terribly nerdy, but I loved school. My entire I don't know. I still love school. I, I love being in school. And I would recreate that in the summertime because it was such a loss for me. Mm-hmm. And when I was in, um, I had a couple of very influential science teachers. You remember in sixth grade, Mr. Kohlberg, he was the first teacher and science teacher that changed my kind of worldview and really impassioned me with this love for science. And he really changed kind of the course of what I wanted to study. And I can remember very vividly him talking about, because it was in the 70s and people smoked. There was a culture of, there were a lot of people who smoked regular paper cigarettes. And I can remember he was the first person to show scientific evidence and in photographs of what actually happened to lungs when people smoked. And I was absolutely riveted by this. And I went on a little personal campaign for everyone I knew um, I get like an anti-smoking campaign. So that was probably my first real, very clear memory of being changed by a science class. And then there were many other science teachers throughout the course of my early education that impacted me. But I can remember I was just looking at my high school yearbook. And I can remember there was a senior switch day and I had forgotten that I had switched to be the chemistry teacher. And so (laughs) I spent the day as the chemistry teacher. So I always knew I was going to be in the classroom because I loved it, but I didn't know how, when, or where, because by the time I graduated high school, I grew up in Connecticut right outside of Yukon. And we had a cooperative program that still exists today. It's very unique to that school district. And I graduated with a little over a a semester from UConn um, that was transferable. So when I entered into college, I had some flexibility in terms of what courses I could take because I had quite a number under my belt. And so I explored all kinds of other things. And I always came back to science and biology and biochemistry. And I had done some research, but I just never imagined not being in the classroom. So you go to UConn. 
Mm-hmm. And you study all sorts of things, including biology. What transitions you from from UConn to being a classroom teacher? Was it a case where you graduate as like this wide-eyed 22, 23-year-old and, and get a, a biology teaching job right away? Or, or is there sort of a path to get to that classroom? Well, I then transferred to Emanuel College, which is in Boston. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Emanuel was an all-women's college. And it was right smack dab in the center of the hospital district. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, honestly, I had dabbled with the thought of becoming an art major, which we can get back to that because I have a very clear um, uh, um, perception of like, I, I believe that biology and art have this very clear connection that I've seen over the years, but that's another topic altogether. But, <laughs> and so I, I major in biology and I had also started some research at Joslin Diabetes Center. I had worked at the Diabetes Complication Control Trial, which was the first human trial for the insulin pump. So I worked in a group that was first developing and using the insulin pump, which was very exciting research. Then I did research in the immunology lab, and I loved doing that. And even after I graduated, I worked in at the children's hospital at the pulmonary lab, but I missed school in general. I just missed school. So during the course of my undergrad, I also walked into the education department and spoke to them. And I had had the flexibility to do so with a degree in biology and a degree in secondary education and graduated with a professional license, which didn't, (laughs) didn't exist. Like it ended up not existing, but you know, a lifetime license at the time. And then I went on and um, did some graduate work to become a middle school science teacher So I guess how I got my first job was I also was very involved in the Emanuel School community, and Mm -hmm. I was part of the Key Club. And so I would do presentations for incoming freshmen and their families. And I was presenting um, as a senior kind of, you know, what I had done, and I had just finished student teaching at Brookline High, and I loved it. I, I loved it. I, I'm still very close with who I student taught under, the teacher. And I was so impassioned. Like, I was just so excited about the prospect of teaching. And little did I know that the head of HR for the Framingham School District in Massachusetts was sitting <laughs> in the audience with um, his daughter. And he essentially offered me a job that afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) That is, uh, it's like those sort of like unplanned (laughs) jobs (laughs) is hysterical. Um, And so this guy happens to be in your tour at the right time to hear you being passionate. It's really funny. Right. It is. So you, so you go out to Framingham. So do you go become, become a middle school teacher at that time or is that at the, the level? Time, I had graduated with, to be a certified high school teacher. Mm-hmm. 
but um, they needed, um, it was a very difficult time in the entire district in Framingham because at the time there were a huge number of budget cuts. Mm. And so this was in Mm. 1989 and they had merged all of the middle schools into one. So being new and not acquainted with any type of politics Um, being thrown into a situation where you have multiple school personnel groups and from different areas of the town, and there was going to be one seventh and eighth grade school. Um, (laughs) That was, it was probably wonderful that I didn't know what I was in for with all of the changes that everybody was struggling with. And it was myself and another young science teacher that had been hired, um, Jim Schultz, and he um, ended up moving out to Western Mass after we had both finished um, a tenure there. (laughs) And we were the first new hires within that particular, like the middle school, I, I think by 10 years. So everybody had been teaching for a quite a long time and oh my gosh, we had fun. We were shaking things up. (laughs) We had a wall full of animals that we did. I mean, all kinds of, you know, investigations and observations and they, we developed, I can remember like developing curriculum on this old Apple computer. It was just a gigantic thing. It was just, I don't know. I, I just recall the time so fondly mm. and thinking it was such a wonderful experience. And instead of having the staff who had been there for so long, instead of them feeling anxious about these two young people coming into um, the school and the department shaking things up, they actually really took us under their wing. And it was, I, I can't imagine starting my career anyplace else. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, again, sort of early on in my career, I remember going into places and I will say I taught in places that treated me that way. I also taught in places that did not treat me that way. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I would say it can cut both ways. There there are places where you can feel like it, an insider. There's also outsider. But I remember distinctly in one of the schools I taught in early in my career where I felt like I felt like everybody's kid, like everybody mm-hmm. looked after me like I was their child teaching <laughs> <laughs> because of the age difference, as you said, like they hadn't had a young teacher come in in years, you know, when I, and I was, you know, my first teaching job was a few years after you in there, but at the same time, you know, there were no new teachers hired really through most of the eighties or the beginning of the nineties, you know, Um, in the, in the mid to late nineties is when there was a new hiring start. And that's where I was, I was coming in. So um, I can envision that there probably were some, some sort of parent like, relationships where people were looking out for you, you know, because you were reminded them of their kids. <laughs> yes, very true. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, I, you know, it's a now a, a, now a pathway. So I know now you have this leadership role. So I'm a little curious what led you from, uh, you know, the big bad city, not that Framingham is a city, much of a city, <laughs> but compared to where you currently teach, 
mm-hmm. teaching middle school in Framingham and being the department chair in at Tahanto, uh, they even though like distance wise, it's probably like a twenty minute drive. Uh, they seem worlds apart. Oh, absolutely. Um, Berlin and Boylston is a very rural district mm. uh, with it, it's a very, very different profile district. And what brought me there is my family. So after I taught for several years, I started a family and I, um, I have um, two children. I have um, a son who is almost 28 and um, a daughter who's 26. And when I had them, I, I, I took some time off to, um, to be with them full time because I knew how, I'll just say it very bluntly, I was absolutely OCD, just compelled by my classroom. And mm-hmm. I spent an inordinate amount of time, as many of us do, <laughs> um, on planning and structuring and restructuring and doing what you need to do. And I am not, I'm not very good at that balance and setting limits. And I knew I was going to drive myself absolutely insane if I didn't take some time off. And so I took some time off and then um, a strange thing, I have a very, like a lot of people don't know this about me, that I have actually taught in some capacity every single grade level <laughs> from preschool to seniors. And that just how life unfolds, as, as complicated and as interesting as life is, my life unfolded in such a way that because of childcare and, and all kinds of other reasons, I found myself teaching preschool when my children were preschool age. And when they entered into elementary school, I found myself doing long-term subpositions in Berlin, which is the other town that's part of the Tonto Regional. And so I have taught every level at at some capacity. So I have a great appreciation for what preschool teachers do, what elementary school teachers do, I, I really thought at one point I was going to die teaching first grade. I, like, <laughs> I couldn't even believe what happens in a first grade classroom. And the, the, just the pure, like, immense task of teaching children how to read was, I, I just thought it was tremendous. So, um, so once they were all kind of settled into a routine, I was asked to become, you know, a science teacher at a private school. So I transitioned into a a private school setting where I had a lot of flexibility and a lot of autonomy. And I taught chemistry, biology, anatomy and physiology. And within the 10 years that I had done that private school teaching, I also transitioned into the interim headmaster for a while. And then I was then taking a break after that um, because it was there was a lot um, happening in my and and I think if you teach in high school and if you've ever had high school students um, as your own, you understand that high school students need as much support, if not more, at times than elementary school um, children. Yeah. Their they, their needs are different, 
but they still need that. And so at that time, I've said, I'm just going to take the year off. And as I'm taking a year off, the principal, who's still currently the principal at Tahanto, called me and said, we need you. We need you. We have we're, we've got ourselves in a situation. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll see how it works. Because my son was a senior at Tahanto at the time, and I didn't want to step on his toes. So I asked my both my kids, I said, would you mind? And they're like, no, you can do it as long as no one knows that you're a mother. And I said, <laughs> okay. Okay. So I tried it and I've been there ever since and just progressively have taken on, you know, more leadership roles as the years have progressed. I'm not surprised that the kids didn't care, but it is, it is funny. Like I can't, if I went and taught in my kids' schools, um, I have interacted with so many of their classmates over the years because, you know, they're kids and you live in the community and (laughs) <laughs> they they don't like there's there's no way especially in a school that size that everybody wouldn't know <laughs> right right right, <laughs> like, right. it's the right. it's it's comical it's a it's a comical like teenage thought process <laughs> right exactly because uh, you know half of the students in his grade had been over the house yeah. you know I cooked dinner for them. <laughs> Yeah. I'm thinking about that. Like my older kid who is entering his senior year of high school right now, I know a handful of the kids in his school. I actually probably know more of their, the families and parents, but of my younger son who has played, you know, competitive soccer up through middle school. Mm-hmm. Like I swear, I know half of the boys who are, you know, either his grade, the grade above or the grade below from coaching them since they were, you know, kindergarten. The idea that I could go and teach in that school and not be known as like an entity is, is comical. Like, right. Right. <laughs> so, so that's so, a wonderful opportunity for you to um, be a coach. Yeah. Um, that really provides, you know, another view into students' lives. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's because I coached for years at the high school I've coached everything from like you, te- you know, teacher wise. Um, I was thinking that I've I could say the same thing about my soccer. I've coached everything from kindergarten to varsity high school mm-hmm. soccer. Um, mm-hmm. I've taught in town soccer. I've taught school soccer. I've taught you know both middle school and high school. I've coached boys and girls. I've coached club. Like I've coached over the last twenty plus years. I've coached sort of every different level. I am certainly a different coach today than I was 23 years ago. And yeah, it's, I, I think my relationship with the kids in town, because to me, it's such a laid back compared to being a varsity coach or even an assistant to the varsity coach where it's like, it feels so high stakes and they're like coaching in town travel soccer is like so much more laid back. Um, Mm -hmm. And the game is honestly, it's so much slower and so much easier. Um, than than those high levels that like I I bring a I bring a degree of relaxed energy to the game that I don't think most parents bring because parents you know yell and scream and they're excited for their kids and stuff like that but um, between both sort of my experience of coaching um, and then also sort of the classroom demeanor I have of working with teens I think my my energy, I definitely have a different energy. And I have been told by by many families when I reach out, like, I have a pretty laid back manner. Um, I play the kids very evenly. Um, oh, wonderful. I'm not about wins and losses. 
Um, so I'm not the right coach for everyone because I've had kids who like, they want to win. Like all they want right. to do is win. But most kids are not like that, particularly there. They just want to go out and play and have fun and, you know, and enjoy the game. So. Right. <laughs> right. Which is, Absolutely. And I also will go out and practice and, and play with them. Um, and yeah, even though I am super old at this point and, you know, have, <laughs> have torn both my ACLs and I am not, I, you know, as I said, I am, I'm, I am fat and I'm slow and I'm, and I have no knees anymore, even though my body can't do everything, I still bring it. Um, and I'm still a, like in my heart, like when the ball's rolling down into the corner and there's a kid running down after that and I'm running in there to mark them. I forget that I'm 40 something years old and I have the two blown knees and like the competitor in me makes me run down and get in the right body position and, you know, like do the right things. Um, and, but I also am not like mean about it. Like I'm not right. looking to rub them in. I'm, I'm working to make them better. And uh, I've developed a lot of really good relationships with the kids. I think in that, in that cohort uh, that I've worked with that. And some of them, like they love it. They, they want me to guard them all the time because they feel like yeah. if they get best, the guy who knows what he's doing. Um, right. It's a lot oh, of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's, let's transition to like what you do now, because you know, you have all this experience and now you, you know, as we alluded to your department chair and you do some curriculum coaching. Mm -hmm. And so we could talk about those roles, but I think for me, the more intriguing part is like, how does that work that you do there impact what you bring to your individual classroom? Because I, I know that it, wearing many hats can sometimes be a distraction and pull you away from being in your room all the time and really focusing on that. But at the same time, I also know that you, you probably learn a lot in those roles that would make it so that that will make you a better teacher. Absolutely. And I think that is exactly what being department chair and curriculum coach allows me to do is um, be more reflective in my own practice uh, to focus on professional development and creating community within our department that encourages people to try new things and it's okay to fail and it's really important to take risks and to know that that's okay and to work together and to share. I have, I think it's such a privilege to go into other professional classrooms. And it's such a gift to me to see what other people do because every single person I believe has strengths to share as well as weaknesses to build on and, and, and absolutely including myself. And it's important to model that reflective nature for all of the teachers that you are working with. Hmm. And to me, that's uh, very, very important. And I'm constantly amazed when I have the opportunity to go into all different classrooms. And, and I have been able to go into the elementary school classrooms because with the shift in now the frameworks have been out for quite some time now, but there's still a transition. We're, we're really still transitioning, especially at the elementary school level, you know, best practices for science because often science has been left out at the mm -hmm. elementary level. 
and, and it's pure and simply because so much of elementary education is the focus on the basics of reading and math and getting those foundations. And so often that there are not many elementary school teachers that have a strong science background that it's very scary. It's a very intimidating prospect. And with the implementation of the new frameworks, the elementary school teachers have been tasked with very, very specific standards that they must teach. And it was, is no longer, you know, whether science is an option or everybody does weather, you know, things that are easily integrated into daily routines. It is very clear science that is being asked um, of these elementary school teachers and they need support. And I'm, you know, very passionate about making sure that the teachers in my district, the science teachers in my district feel comfortable and feel good about what they're doing. But in, you know, in that process, I've been able to get into the elementary school classes there and have just, they've taught me so much mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in so many ways. So I really look at these roles as an opportunity for me to grow and for me to provide an environment that's supportive that allows the teachers to grow. Yeah, I, by the time kids get to high school, they have decided whether or not they are good at science or not right. good at science. And the probably Venn diagram of kids to get to high school and think that they're good at science and want to be elementary school teachers is probably a pretty small population. Um, right. And I think that, you know, we've done a disservice to... Uh, you know, and it was done to us as well. I'm not, not going to say that we we invented the problem, but uh, I do think that the idea that that science is a bunch of information, you know, it really really set up a situation where I I can appreciate why somebody who has spent the last ten to fifteen years feeling that they weren't good at science now has to teach it, um, and mm-hmm. especially with the amount of passion and empathy they bring to their job, that can be really daunting. And at the same time, like what's better than an elementary school kid to present wonder to like right absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah and that's really what to me science is all about sort of like wonder and exploring and and that sort of thing and so I think there is a lot of framing that needs to go on in that but um, like there are times where I wish that you know, I went into a room where kids hadn't already decided that they were either good at science or bad at science. They just had to possess that wonder the way, you know, a second grader does. Um, Cause I don't think a second grader has decided whether they're good or bad at stuff. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas Absolutely. at high school they have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that would be like, that's, so I think sort of my dream is that someday, you know, and I've, I often talk about like, who is, who are the kids who sign up for, you know, the AP biology? Well, those kids have already decided that they're good at science. Like that's, I don't right. have to sell them on that. 
But I also wonder about all the kids who I talk to who say, oh, who I, I have for first year biology, but they're like, oh, yeah, I couldn't take that class. I'm not good at science. And I'm like, you took honors biology. Like, yeah, like, but I just got to be in honors biology. And I was like, yeah, that's good. Like you did well in honors biology, but somehow they've decided that that's not a path that they're going to take. And that's, it's a, a very weird, it's a very weird dilemma that you face with those right. kids. I, I agree. And I, I think you, you hit on such an important point that whole wonder. Um, mm. And I think that has probably been over the years when students say um, that is the biggest compliment I've ever received is when, when students have said that I have created that wonder in them, that my passion you know, rubbed off on them and they never knew they could be good at science. And now they felt confident and comfortable in science class. And that is absolutely to me, the biggest compliment. Yeah. Yeah. I think when, when kids tell you that they see that you're passionate, it's, there's, there's something, there's something great about that. Um, Mm -hmm. Because like, it's not something you plan. Like it's not part of the lesson plan. No, like it's not like I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to be passionate. It's just like, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just what you are. Like you're, right. you're doing things that are authentically exciting. Um, and yeah, I had, a, I had a student who wrote me a note, a senior, they told me that they appreciated how passionate that I was at, at you know, like what we were doing. And they hope that someday they, they can find something that they're that passionate about. It was clear from their note that biology wasn't that thing, um, <laughs> but they, but they appreciated that I was really excited and passionate about what I was doing, but not biology for them. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, Fabulous. I was, I was like, that's a great lesson. Like if they can realize that, you know, if they can find that thing that they want to get up and do every morning and right. that's the thing they go do, like, if it's not biology, no big deal. But like, um, right. it was a, it was a very, it was a very teenager note that I, I certainly appreciated. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into the, uh, the big black hole of unknown. How are you approaching like what you're doing PD wise, and also like, how are you getting ready for the fall? Because I think those two things sort of probably go together as a single entity. Yes, um, there are a number of things. So I am on the reentry committee, um, mm-hmm. and that we are trying our hardest to come up with three viable versions of different scenarios, whether it's fully remote, hybrid. Um, and in-person instruction. And I think because we're looking at those three different models simultaneously, I, you know, I truly, I have to believe in, in, you know, until we understand more about what is happening that we really need to um, understand that we will be moving into and out of all of three models um, Mm -hmm. this year, because that, um, with the nature of what's happening, um, I think that we have to be realistic. And if we're realistic, um, we're not going to be caught off guard. And yeah. I know that if, you know, it's always nice to be pleasantly surprised, but I know also that teachers can be some of the most flexible people um, and they can 
turn things on a dime. You know, how often do we come into school and we're like, oh, you know, we have some type of all school assembly, you know, at 12 today that was unplanned because we need to take care of this, address this issue or whatever it is. And we all work with it because that's the nature of what we do. And we make sure that all of our students are feeling secure in those transitions and doing our best to make sure that it works for as many students as you know we can um, have that happen. So we're planning for the three scenarios. And in doing that, I am making sure that I have there are tons of resources and really paring down the resources and becoming well acquainted with the resources, uh, virtual remote resources, uh, making sure that those are aligned very specifically with the task at hand. And, and I think you can get overwhelmed and I, any of the new teachers that come into the department, I always stress you know, pick a few good things and work on those. And then you can progressively add, you don't have to be an expert at everything. So looking at what the state has developed for the, you know, requisite skills for each of those and understanding how they view what's vitally important for them to get out of a course and then integrating my own passion and trying to fit the tools to make sure that that all runs smoothly. Um, that's, I'm really focusing on that. You know, what information can be done remotely? What type of skills and teaching can be done remotely and what should be done in person? And then matching the tools for that um, to happen. I'm also involved in you know, my heart hurts with also so much of what's going on um, socially. And I'm trying yeah. to make sure that we have integrated um, some anti-racist pedagogy, you know, within and, and trying to provide support and information to teachers who want it, um, but also provide it for teachers who just, you know, not understanding you know, all of the issues at hand and, and just bringing to light um, bigger pictures for them. And so those are big tasks. Yeah. And I feel some days I'm, I think to myself, oh my gosh, I don't, because I go down these rabbit holes of when I'm, I sit down and I said, okay, I'm going to plan. And then two hours goes by and I, I don't have anything concrete. And but I've done a lot of reading and a lot of research and I, you know, I think um, professional development this summer feels overwhelming, um, yeah. but trying to be focused on really, you know, essential skills, the virtual kind of remote resources and that uh, anti-racist pedagogy, those would be kind of my, my top focus areas for this summer. Yeah. And I'll, I'll provide a little bit of context in terms of Massachusetts for, for people who are outside of the state though, I think because I have some friends who are in other places. Um, yes. I, I've been super stressed for my friends who are not in the Northeast. Um, but Massachusetts, they mandated 
gosh, what was it? Probably about three, four weeks ago. I don't know. The time is a flat circle at this point. I don't remember when anything happened, but uh, about three or four weeks ago at the end of June, they rolled out that um, all school districts had to come up with a a, a three-part plan for re-entry that included a fully online model, a fully back-to-school model, and a hybrid model. That was a mandate. So like all districts, my district included, um, the difference between my district and your district, as we sort of alluded to in terms of size, like I think our high school has a committee, the district has a committee, each of the individual schools has committees, but there's also a district and I think then there's a steering committee that oversees all of those committees. So there's like, we're like committees on committees and committees. So there's that. But we don't really go back until the end of August, beginning of September. And for us in Massachusetts, whereas the rest of the country is, the numbers are like the worst they've ever been. You know, our numbers are not so bad, mm-hmm. but they're not so bad with us being pretty closed down. I mean, Massachusetts is, I mean, I don't know if you've been eating dinner in a restaurant. Um, last time I ate dinner in a restaurant was, I think, February. Um, yeah. Right. And I don't, I don't go in stores. I don't, like, and I just, I think about, like, the nature of what my classroom looks like or used to look like. And I do so much stuff where kids are in small groups and there are yes. four kids around a table working on something and they can't do that. Like, in the new model... Right. I cannot put four kids at a lab bench, Mm-mm. not even just do a lab, but to do like a pogle. Right. So if they're not going to be like that, does this like there's a part of me that's like straining under the weight of every model I've seen for reentry makes it look like all of a sudden I'm going to teach like it's 2002 and it's all direct instruction. Mm-hmm. And I don't teach that way. I don't teach with kids like my kids don't sit at desks staring at a front board doing problems by themselves or taking notes like that's not how I run my class. I used to run my class that way. But so how do I if that is the formation where all the kids have to be facing the same way, which is, by the way, part of our state guidelines. Right. And they're all spread apart. How do I do the things that I do if we are in that model so that it doesn't feel like I'm. I've become a direct instruction teacher again. Like right. how, how do I do that? So that's sort of the dilemma I have. Um, I think you're very optimistic. I don't know, but I've been trying to tell everyone, including myself, I'm not going to worry about this until August late middle to late August when decisions actually have to be made. Cause right now for Massachusetts, we don't need to make those kind of decisions right now. So right. We do have on. to have our, our plans in, I guess the state just identified for us, um, the commissioner asked that all of our plans are in July b- before the end of um, July. Yeah. So the last week in July, which was um, a little bit um, a different timeline because we thought we were shooting for like the beginning of August, like the first couple weeks in August. Yeah. But I, it, it is, it's, you know, I, Yes, just as you said, my classroom is a very active place. I am, I am constantly moving about. The kids are constantly in groups, um, Mm -hmm. and just very, you know, spur of the moment. If something isn't sitting right with them, I immediately change my game. And when you've been teaching long enough, you have a hundred tricks in your back pocket. (laughs) Yeah. 
And so you can do that. That's, that's the nice thing about having had some years and also being in other people's classrooms. And I think to myself, how is, how is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And I, as I said, I, I also, the other thing that I haven't heard anyone really talking about, um, and I'm even almost hesitant to bring it up is, um, there's a lot of research about, uh, stress levels, cortisol levels and cognition. Um, and I am really, really, really worried about not only the adults and their ability to learn and be flexible in a higher stress environment, but also if kids are stressed by the way we're going through this process. And I think a lot of that will be, you know, unconscious signaling that the adults are stressed. So therefore the kids are going to be stressed. But if the kids are stressed as we're going through this, which I think was the case in a lot of the emergency learning that we did in the spring, it's going to be really hard for them to learn in the fall. And so I think that like as part of our thinking, while it may be feasible to get a certain number of bodies in a building on a certain time, what at what stress cost will it be? And right. what will be the impact of that stress on cognition and learning? And that's not been something I've been hearing anybody talking about. It's like, no, we got to get people back in a building. But right. But just getting people physically back in a building is not magic. Like kids do not learn because they're in four walls. Like they can learn in those four walls, but they can also not learn in those four walls. And just like they can learn online or not learn online, that there is a, there's a degree of alchemy that comes in about setting up an environment for learning. And I really feel like a lot of the discussions have been about processes and pathways, but not necessarily about the the learning environment. And I feel like those learning environment conversations are going to come on the back end once the logistics have been worked out, then mm-hmm. the learning environments, and which again, feels very backwards to me. Like is right. what, optimal learning environment seems like where I tend to start. And I realize I'm, that's not my job, but my job is not logistics. That's, <laughs> that is a <laughs> administrator's job. And that's one of the reasons I'm not an administrator. But um, the fact is, is that whatever environment we have, my role is to really create a learning environment for my students in whatever that ends up flushing out to be. And I, I, I guess for me, the unknown of what that what that face-to-face model of kids masked but spread out and all facing right. the same direction or some sort of hybrid model where some are in the room and some are online and that, how do you take that physical logistics and turn it into a, a learning environment um, is something that I think there's going to be a learning curve this year and I'm going to have to give myself some permission to like be vulnerable and struggle and be open to kids and get them into a place where they get to a point where they're engaged to learn. And that is figuring out what that's going to be is something that's only going to happen once we are sort of in the belly of the beast, so to speak. (laughs) Right. I absolutely, um, I absolutely agree. And I think everybody is going to have to be, um, you know, gentle with themselves and, really focus on the ability of the student to learn and what that is going to look like. And I felt like I paid very close attention to that with the, uh, with the remote situation. Hmm. And I made sure immediately that 
I was accessible to students having, you know, time and scheduled space for students to connect, which I think is really important. But I am always really fascinated that so much that is talked about education, about what happens in school, there's so many non-teachers <laughs> who have really strong opinions. And that always, it, it's just a fascinating dynamic for me to, it, it's, it's fascinating. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Um, it's, it, it does feel a lot like to me, I think my stress is that you talk about all the different voices. I also feel like people talk about school, like it's a monolith and like, even within my district, the elementary schools aren't the same as each other, right. exactly. let alone, let alone the elementary schools are different than the middle that's different from the high. So even in my district where I teach and where my kids, my kids, one of my kids goes to a middle school, one goes to high school. Those schools are different. They have different cultures. They have different personalities. They have different faculties. They have different student bodies. Every school is a community unto itself. And coming up with policies that are right for school <laughs> is, is an impossible task because right. all schools are different. And um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting learning uh, curve for people where you'll have people who will be shouting at each other about how this thing is working and this person's yelling and shouting, this thing is not working. And they're both right because they're talking about different schools and different communities. Um, and I think that's what we're, we're heading into as we go into this fall. Yes. So. A daunting task. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to break from this conversation of what's going to happen in, you know, September 2020 and think, all right, so let's project this out and we're going to go out two or three years. We've gotten this all past us. <laughs> or maybe you can even say it's something you're looking forward to next year. Um, but what are you looking forward to in the school years to come? Like, what are you looking forward to in your classroom, um, either back when we get back to normal or maybe it's something that you're excited about, even in these, you know, challenging times? Well, I think one of the things I enjoy doing is um, working with colleagues in my school. And what I'm really looking forward to is continuing to build out an interdisciplinary um, school trip that two of my colleagues, and we've added additional teachers as we've grown the program but it's an interdisciplinary unit that was developed between the AP English, AP History, and myself. And it is a weekend Cape Cod trip based on Henry Beston's book, The Outermost House. And we have, over the years, have developed this program and it has become an integral part of what happens in AP Bio, um, what happens in this uh, a course that um, my two colleagues, they have put together this nature of being course and the um, history and the English as well. And we've developed it around not only the writings of Henry Beston, but 
we were the first group of students to actually have a program developed by the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, which is very active down at the Cape. Um, they have the Shark Sharktivity app and the Shark Museum, and I've worked really closely with them. Uh, we've developed a great relationship with the Audubon Society, and really building that program out and really making that a larger program, maybe not just the weekend, but maybe a four or five day program mm -hmm. and incorporate scientists who are doing work there and perhaps almost develop a citizen science type role that extends that learning um, beyond just that field trip that we take. And it's one of my favorite experiences. And we all, the three of us, really want to grow that. And I, I love interdisciplinary units and really exploring that more, bringing art into my classroom, <laughs> I think has been incredibly beneficial to many of my students has made them better scientists in that they can observe things more keenly. And so I think those are, those are the things that make me excited, uh, really providing experiences. And although I work uh, with the ABE community uh, mostly out of Boston, I really think to myself, I, our district is really <laughs> next door to Worcester. Yeah. And I really think that there's a tremendous opportunity that is untapped. And I'd like to explore that. And that was actually getting explored. And I had a couple of things lined up and that was stopped um, quickly in its track. But, you know, picking that up, and I think those types of programs provides, as what you were saying, Aaron, the, the programs that you remember when you were going to school, I remember very similar. I remember Wayne Schlegel, he created this, it was an, like an AP English class, and we did things so out of the box, you know, we had a medieval night where we had, <laughs> it, it was just incredible. And those are the things I remember. And yeah. I want to, I want to create those experiences for my students. Yeah. Yeah. I think back to like, I went to, I remember going to see uh, the Tempest at, when I was taking Shakespeare. And I remember um, my, one of the history teachers took a sabbatical and went out to the West and made all of these movies. And again, they, he did this in the like, late eighties, early nineties, I guess it was the late eighties. And he got, he made like a series of videos of himself being filled. And then he built a class called the American West. Um, yeah. And it, he'd made like 30 videos that were like, you know, all about 50. I mean, basically he was a YouTube celeb just showing videotapes in his classroom, but he had like camera equipment and he went out there and he, and he recorded himself in all of these locations all throughout the American West that were these seminal like locations about Western westward expansion of the United States and took a year. And that was like, he built his entire class based off of the series of videos he made at the time. Like I, like they were, I had some crazy personality teachers in there. 
Yeah. I was also marveling as you were talking both about the, the, the trip, the interdisciplinary trip about that's like one of your joys of being a tiny little school. Um, yes. <laughs> as we have like 85, 86 kids signed up for AP biology again this year. Um, right. <laughs> you know, like, and last year we were well over hundred last year we had a spike. We were almost 125 students taking wow. AP biology. Um, so yeah, I mean like that's, one of those great advantages you have, but we can do things because of our size that are difficult for smaller schools. So again, there are advantages to both size and scope and taking that and turning them into experiences for your community is super important. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, um, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? I mean, you play with your turtles and I've seen videos. Right. Yes. My <laughs> turtles. I love my turtles. Um, I, I have, and that I have to be honest with you is just something I never, ever, I wasn't a turtle lover growing up. <laughs> I it just, I, I don't know what happened. It, it happened 10 years ago where, um, I am, because I'm the biology teacher and because I, get so excited about all kinds of things. And I bring the kids outside and I just, I love it. I love, I love all of it. And so people come into my classroom all the time when they found things. <laughs> yeah. And so I, that was my first turtle. They had, it was a, a turtle that had been um, I just limping along on the track outside and somebody came in from gym class and, you know, wanted it to be saved. And, and so we saved it. And that was turtle number one. And so it kind of grew and I've been, you know, that has, is my claim to fame now and just um, such an odd thing. So I've rescued quite a few turtles. <laughs> Other than my turtles though, when I've become now with the remote learning um, over the course of this past spring, um, I have, I'm the neighborhood turtle lady as well. <laughs> um, I have had quite a few elementary schools, um, children come uh, and use my turtles as their projects, as their oh. science projects. So that's been fun. Um, I am a passion, I'm passionate about gardening as well. I think that growing um, your food is marvelous and I love to garden and I um, spend a lot of time in the garden. I love to cook, uh, all kinds of things. And kind of, I actually use a lot of food analogies mm. in, um, in biology. And that's always really fun for me. And the kit, and I think that's that like a quirky thing that the kids know about me that they, and they know that I cook and, when I have an analogy that, and you really have to understand that, I, and I am very aware of when I'm using these food analogies, there is a certain amount of background knowledge that I've come to realize that is, you know, a, a widening gap. So it's an opportunity for me to share a little bit of myself <laughs> with the students uh, yeah. in, a, in, you know, kind of a safe way. So that's um, a fun thing. I love to do art. I, uh, I, you know, do kind of three-dimensional art. I do um, pastel work. I sketch. I do botanicals and reading. Um, I am a 
voracious reader. I love to read. I am currently reading three books. <laughs> uh, and I know that's, um, I, I just, I can't, I can, my kids, when they were little, they would beg me to stop reading. <laughs> um, and, and it was just like, and cause I would get so wrapped up. I can remember in the summertime, cause that was my, t- that was my time and space. And I wouldn't, obviously I wasn't neglectful, but they, I, I just, I, 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 it was, it's so, uh, it transports me. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now I'm reading Spillover, which uh-huh. I, I think I uh, recommended. Uh, <laughs> yes. I just, I'm over the top with it. Um, I finished and I have like a couple more pages, but I've been taking notes, some assembly required, mm-hmm. um, by um neil shubin and then i um have just started um white fragility so i've got a a lot of things um going reading and i love to hike so that is what i do in my spare time (laughs) (laughs) which you which you only have right now so um right (laughs) wow all right well um before we get to pics of the episode do you have any questions for me? Well, I, I there are a couple things I, like because I I always find myself in the vortex of planning. Yeah, and I, I describe that I lost two hours, and so I I'm always interested in there are two things that I'm interested in, um, but more broadly, what how do you approach planning? I, and 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 I ask this because people say, "Well, you've been doing this for so long. Shouldn't you already be pretty well planned?" And I revise everything all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm never okay with the way you know. I'm always revising. So how do you approach that? It's funny, like you 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 bring this question up because I I thought about I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, and you know, I think you've met Brian Dempsey my colleague. So um, Brian and I have been working together for 20 years. And when we first started working together, I would say that the best way to describe the two of us is that Brian was a big picture, big story, not details oriented kind of person. And I was a nitty gritty details kind of person. And that's how we approached curriculum 20 years ago. Right. And by working with Brian over 20, the last 20 years, I have realized that I am really good at the nitty gritty and making things work. And I was not as good at the big story and picture. And I have become a big picture planner now because it's something that's harder for me to do, but it's, it's something that I become much more creative about. So generally speaking, when it comes to curriculum, I start with like, what is the overarching goal of what we're working on? Um, So for example, in AP, we've been toying around with storylines for the last few years. And so what I often start with is like, what's sort of a big, interesting question that could be tethered to a lot of different things. And then I sort of make that sort of the, the major focal point. And then I start thinking, all right, well, what would be the, the phenomena that would draw people into that. All right. What would be the, the, the learning objectives that would be achieved here? And then within those learning objectives, what would be the, the skills or the concepts that would have to be developed based off of that? So I have definitely moved into a big to small model um, that's there. 
And so what I build a lot of resources, I try to build resources that are sort of evergreen that could be mixed and matched and dropped into different places. So um, like this summer, I've been working on videos and I used to make videos where I would design the curriculum and then I would just make a video that would fit into a particular spot in the unit that would work in the unit that I was doing. Again, nitty gritty details. And now when I'm going to make videos, I actually try to make them so that if we decided to blow our entire curriculum up and rearrange that, the video would still work because the video is about a concept and that concept is being used within the context of a big picture, if that makes sense. Yes. So, so I think going back to sort of what you were talking about, your interdisciplinary trip and the connections and that sort of stuff, I think that the bigger stories are what the kids always remember. And rather than like, they don't remember the individual activities unless that activity is tied to a bigger story. Right. So like from high school, I remember what vectors are when I was in high school, because in high school physics, one of our projects, a vector project was that all of the students were paired up into either were pairs or groups of three. And we were brought to the, a corner of a building at Amherst college. And we were given three vectors and we had to walk the three vectors using a compass and what we had figured out was what our steps led to feet. And it was like a certain number of feet in one vector, certain number of feet in another vector, certain number of feet in another vector. And we had to walk them out. And we were all supposed to get to the same finishing point. And there were fences in the ways and buildings in the way. And we had to like use trigonometry to work our way around the vectors. And in some cases you went through the woods and there was like a pond or like a wet you had to work your way around there. So I always remember that vectors are <laughs> both a uh, magnitude and direction because we had to go and walk those. Now, that project was part of a larger, I don't remember what the like overall thing we were doing, but I always will remember what a vector is because of the experience of doing that project that we did. Um, right. And so I try to do the same thing with my units of, I try to come up with like a big overarching story and then really captivating ways of, of, exposing components that you need to understand to get to that story. So right. oh. that's sort of my general, <laughs> my general plan. Uh, I have no idea what that's going to look like. And again, uh, labs are such a big part of how I do that, that I yes. really have no idea how that's going to work this upcoming year. I think that's probably one of my bigger stressors. Um, yeah. Labs and projects. We use a lot of labs and projects. I think most of my projects uh, for AP are going to translate very nicely because they're not, I don't think that's going to be a big deal, but my, but our labs like baseline lab, follow-up lab, how are we going to do that? Um, doing enough trials, trials that are repeatable. Like uh, there are definitely some things that I'm stressed about in terms of having kids have an active lab experience when they can't be physically in the room um, is something I, I have not finished wrapping my head around. Right. I agree. I think we've, um, that was a meeting that we had as a science department is, you know, what, what type of lab experience are we going to provide for our students? Um, and, you know, I'm challenging them to look at using, um, the budget to create kind of labs to go. Yeah. You know, things that can be done at home, it, you know, it won't be perfect, but it's, it, it it's going to be better than no lab experience. And, you know, then coming back together 
and sharing data and then tweezing out that data. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that I'm very much in the same boat. Um, and I have a couple that I've worked out, but it's not a, it's not a year's worth of curriculum. You know, I've got, no. it's, it, it, it's a, it's a much more, it's a much less ambitious uh, array of lab experiences that, I would do in the physical building. Um, and it's a lot less, it, it's also massively time consuming, like <laughs> the yeah. planning and the executing and the materials and getting the materials. Like it's exhausting to think about how to do some of those things, but doable. Um, and I, I think that that is the direction we're going to be heading as well. Right. So. Yes, absolutely. So my, my, my second question I have to you is what, what lesson or what experience did you have with your students during remote learning that you felt great about? Yeah. Um, so I think a couple of things sort of came out um, that I felt good about. Um, I thought I got really good at using, uh, particularly we used Zoom as our video um, conferencing tool for synchronous stuff. Um, and I got, I got pretty good at using Zoom to recreate a lot of sort of the turn and talk type work for my kids using breakout rooms where, oh. you know, the very, the, the, as I, as I said, a lot of my student work in class, when my kids come in more often than not, they're at lab benches in small groups working on something, whether that's a lab or it's a pogol or it's a set of challenge problems or whatever. They're, they're doing things in small groups you know, sort of distributed around the rooms. But when I do have them sit in desks, what I often have them doing is I will put a challenge problem up that will have them doing, and I do this at, at all levels, whether it's, you know, a, a freshman level biology or a, a, a an AP level biology. I have a challenge question that has them looking at a scenario where they have to access their understanding of the science and then sort of think through the conceptual understanding of what's going on. And ideally I would have them working on some of the science practices, like asking questions or analyzing data. I'll be honest. I, I don't think I'm as deep down the road as I would like to be on that stuff. Um, but I have them work on sort of testing their own individual knowledge. And I do a lot of sort of think, pair, share, turn and talk, think and vote out what you think the best answer is, if it's a multiple choice or that sort of thing. And so what I did is I built like little small decks of like, you know, five or six questions that were based off the learning objectives of what we've been working on and then sending them into breakout rooms where they would work together in a small group on those challenge problems. And I think that that recreated something that was sort of built off of what we do normally in the room where the student voice was really dominating and they were having a chance to discuss and work. I will say that my AP students did better at that stuff than my my first year biology students. And I think that that highlighted that I need to do a little bit better sort of community building in the online space with my younger students that I think were just le less comfortable right. in that. I, I think the the my, my AP students have like just a dynamic community to them just in general. Whereas I think my younger students are more guarded and they're younger and they, I, I need to spend more time building community with that group. And that's something I knew before we went on distance learning, but I think dis distance learning exacerbated their, you know, they're comfortable if I put them in certain groups, but they're not as comfortable in any and all group. Whereas my AP students, I can put any group of students with any other group of students and they seem to do just fine. My younger students, I don't think 
I need to do a little bit more community building with them. But um, I was happy with using breakout rooms to do small group like discussions. Um, and I picked up a few other ideas that I'm going to try out and I'm actually going to, I have some, some plans to try and do pogles that way. Um, oh, using yes. breakout rooms this year where, um, I got some ideas about how I could turn some pogles into some slide decks where kids could then work on those or possibly doing pogles in something like a, a pair deck right? where they could try to work through, in small groups on, on those type of things. So I've got a few ideas. Um, those are sort of back burner that I'll be working on probably in, in August to try out a few different examples of that. Um, when inevitably we're <laughs> trying to teach using distance <laughs> learning, um, in those types of setups. Yes, that's great. Yeah. I, um, I think that's great that you were able to use the breakout room. We were encouraged to use um, the Google Meet because of the um, ability for the district to kind of manage that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was limitations and I felt like there wasn't um, a, you know, a really proficient way to build that community. Uh, mm -hmm. so I applaud you for that. I mean, that's, that's great that you were able to, to develop that out. Yeah. And again, I think it, I, as you mentioned earlier, we all have strengths and weaknesses. And I think the, the use of that tool highlighted things that I had done well with that, with the group, with both of my groups, but also it highlighted things where there were, you know, things that weren't great or things that even, you know, didn't work the same way at all levels and areas where I need to, you know, be a little bit more nuanced on how I approach some of those tools as I, as I move forward, um, you know, in, in the, in the time to come. And that'll, that'll be true. Even if we get back into brick and mortar, um, I think that's probably been my biggest takeaway from the spring was, wow, I, I really need to, I need to really bring community out as a, a bigger focus with my, with my younger students. Um, yes. Because I think that it's been, it's hit or miss, but I think it's hit or miss because sometimes I get really great kids who help build that community, but it's not something that's inherently part of my classrooms. Like where it's very rare that I don't have an AP class that's like, just like rocking and rolling and having a grand old time. Like that group, the way I run that class and the way that group of students comes together, we have really just an amazing time together every period. Like I just, I just, it's a joy to be in the room with them. And I think with my honors kids, it's not that we don't have fun. It's just that it's, I think it's a, it's a much more guarded space and I need to do mm -hmm. a lot more work at making it a less guarded space and a more free space and a more open space where kids feel comfortable sharing their ideas and, and that sort of stuff. And because they're at a different developmental place, that means that I'm going to have to approach it differently. Right. So. Yes. All right. Well, we have gotten to picks of the episode. Uh, Lisa, what is your pick? I really like the Marshall Memo. Mm -hmm. And um, this morning, I actually, there was a new edition that was put out. But the last issue that was um, put out, I had read Countering Three Misconceptions About Cultural Proficiency, which really helped me to understand that cultural proficiency and creating an environment of growth and growth mindset for teachers and to foster that uh, amongst the staff. And 
uh, this morning when I opened up, because it's always a treat. It's like when I, um, when I open the mailbox and National Geographic is in there, uh, you know, it's a treat. So um, the Marshall Memo came out and the, one of the titles was, you know, when scientific literacy is a matter of life and death. And I think that that has been such a resounding theme in, uh, in my classes, uh, scientific lit- literacy and the relevance of science in the everyday and championing that as an important skill, scientific literacy. And I think that there, there was a time, right when we shut down, um, our district was very caught. They, everybody, no one knew what the right thing to do was. And we were very concerned about the stress level of our students. So they had asked, you know, please don't talk about the virus all that much. Well, I was just like, oh, good grief. I've been talking about the virus since January. <laughs> I had been taught literally January 25th. I had put together a bunch of resources in Google Classroom in AP Bio. And I, I had been following this story and, you know, kind of teasing apart all of the, you know, the stories and understanding of what was happening and, and you know, data analysis and how we look at data. And oh, I, I was, I thought to myself, oh, good grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, yes, you know, science. And when our seniors graduated, we were asked, each of us, uh, each of the teachers was asked to kind of write a message and... And I said, you know, I kind of wrote my message as, you know, always study science or, you know, um, (laughs) keep interested in science because it seems to be quite relevant now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I think, you know, those two things, you know, kind of spoke to me um, where I'm at in terms of, you know, kind of the journey of what we're doing in our schools. Yeah, I was in the same boat. I had been, I don't know that I talked about it a ton before February break. I, don't, I brought it up, I think, a little bit before our February break. But when we came back from our February break, I was talking about it pretty heavily with my AP classes as well. I had I had, had the John Hopkins dashboard up, th- you know, two and a half weeks before we ended up going forever. <laughs> uh, definitely had that up. Uh, I had some students who were talking to me, talking to me a lot about it. Um, and definitely I had some who were talking to me in January and in February um, because we do have a, a fairly international school where, you know, people are from all over the world. And, um, but I do think that you're right. The vast majority of the school, um, I remember having a conversation with one of my history teacher friends who I had said some, I had said some stuff to him about it and we had been talking about it and he brought it up. I think the week, the like the Monday that before we ended up shutting down and he was bringing it up with like one of his, you know, sophomore mid-level classes and like asking them what their thoughts were. And they just wasn't even on their radar. And I think that for people who weren't tied into sort of the science or who weren't personally already impacted, they weren't thinking about it. Um, But for me, because my students come from all over the world and I had some, you know, children of doctors and frontline medical workers they were, there were places that were already putting plans in place 
um, the week we shut down. So yeah, it was very interesting time. Yes. Oh, this like an aside, the resource. Have you seen the resource Next Strains? Yes. Oh yeah. my gosh. I love it. Yeah. I think that my problem with the Next Strains is that it um, it gives people the perception that this virus is evolving really rapidly because right. it looks right. like a phylogeny. Um, right. When in fact, right. if you, and that's like one of those things about like, I actually had my dad ask me a question um, a couple months ago when we were chatting. He's like, so is there, are there seven types of this virus out there? And I was like, no. And I was like, no. and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you know, there are some epitopes that are out there as like, but is it at, in general speaking, there is one COVID-19. There might right. be a slight variation in there, but th first of all, there, this is a proofreading. This is a an RNA virus that's not a retrovirus, so it does not have the same kind of mutation rate that you have with HIV. And second of all, it also has a proofreading enzyme, which even though RNA viruses have, like I think he probably glossed over at that point when I was talking to him. <laughs> I was like, yes. I was like, like we are now like in my wheelhouse. I'm like, you want to talk virology, Dad? We've never had that conversation, but I'd be happy to talk virology with you all day. Like it'd be like if he started telling me about like software engineering, like I, I'm not a software engineer. I'm sure he could geek out on that, but like, um, <laughs> but I, I explained to him and then I said, no, there's one. So don't worry about that. Um, I was like, if you want to go down the proteomics about why these viruses and why these mutations do not mean that there's multiple strains, I'd be happy to talk about that. But at the moment, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> I was like, there might be two, but the data on that's not very strong. So, <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah, next train. Uh, but that's why uh, the visualization of next train is pretty cool. But I do think it gets get, gets misinterpreted, misinterpreted. Right, absolutely. And that's uh, and that's also where you can you know you can talk about what you're seeing and what it means, and mm -hmm. that you have to be you know you have to be careful. You have to you know ask questions. Yeah. And, and not just consume information, but you have to be, a, you know, a critical consumer of information and, and look at it and, you know, where are those variations taking place? And, you, you know what I mean? It, it, um, so it can lend itself to some great conversations. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think it's, yeah, it's something that needs to be, you know, guided through. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, my uh, pick sort of building off of what I, I mentioned earlier was this, um, this article that I came across uh, just a, a couple weeks ago. It's actually from, um, it's from higher ed. Um, it's the Chronicles of Higher Education. And uh, the article is called, Turns Out You Can Build Community in a Zoom Classroom. Um, and I think this very much speaks to my mindset about where I am, uh, which is like, you know, what is it that like, what is the most important thing that we do? And I think ultimately we are, teachers of biology, but we are teachers of high school students. And like those two things can't be separated. Like we're not just like presenters of content. We are helping students learn and community is such an important part of the way I teach. So um, it, it basically highlights a lot of the things that are in there. And it resonated with me because I had what would have been like Particularly, I think of one of my classes. I, my, I had two AP lecture, sort of like we call them lecture classes, not that I ever lectured, but uh, two of my sections of AP biology. One of them was a little smaller, and they were a 
they were a pretty tight knit group in general. And they just on their own started using the chat on the side. And so if I was like joking around with them and like I, I said something, they would like be kids who wouldn't like necessarily be talking. They would be chatting with each other in the chat like they would chat to one another like via text or via private message or very like that sort of thing. They were chatting in there in a very sort of informal, loose way. And I think it was a huge part of like what makes that group, that group, they weren't inappropriate, but they were like, they were loose and they were, they were joking around and they were, they were themselves. And I think that there was a lot of the stuff that was in this that I use, but not necessarily everything. And I think, I think it's probably a good foundational document to think about, about how we're going to use these online spaces to have community when we have this virtual space, which some students will find very easy to navigate, but many students will struggle with. And we want all students to be able to find comfort in whatever community space we build. And so this article sort of, as I said, resonated with me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Important. Very important. All right. Let me give my credits for uh, the show. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Um, you may not be commuting, but you got plenty of time. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is episode 99. Uh, my next episode in early August will be episode 100. I've been doing this for over four years, which is crazy to think about um, the, the number of these episodes I've put out there. Uh, you can uh, support my work, uh, help offset costs of my uh, servers that I post on my website by going to patreon.com slash lots. I post audio up a couple days early for my Patreon so they can get access. I will also post show notes there. I also post show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Lisa on Twitter at Sequera Bio, and I will put her Twitter handle in my show notes as well. Lisa, thank you. This was a ball. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It was very fun. Thank you. I really, I feel like I could pick your brain for another hour. Like I really, <laughs> it's, um, thank you. Really. Um, I loved the conversation. So thanks for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon. 